Hello, Elmo, editor of the Science Basement podcast. If I were to ask you, why did you choose to co-host specifically this episode? What would be your short answer? Probably an unhealthy relationship with systematic abuse. Wonderful. The Science Basement. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano. And I'm your co-host, Elmo. And this is the second episode of our three-episode miniseries made in collaboration with Cochrane Organization, the international charitable organization with the aim of promoting evidence-informed health decision-making by producing top-quality systematic reviews, which have now become the gold standard for evidence-based information. In our previous episode, we had a wonderful chat about systematic reviews during COVID-19 time with John Lavis. So if you missed it, just go and give it a play. But today, to talk with us about how scientists collect and filter information and eventually organize it in systematic reviews, we have Fiona Stewart, NIHR's Network Support Fellow for Cochrane Children and Families and Experienced Systematic Reviewer at Cochrane. Hello, Fiona. How are you? Hi, Giuliano. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're just delighted. I'd like to highlight that, Fiona, you're here today just to state your opinion on, on, on matters. You're not here representing uh, Cochrane's uh, opinion, as far as I understand. So, Elmo, just tell me if I'm wrong. You, as an MD student, you are way more familiar than I am with systematic reviews. Am I right? I, I had this impression at least. Yes, yes. Systematic reviews are very much part of the uh, curriculum for every basic MD student. Whereas I'm just a biologist, so I'm quite familiar with reviews. Systematic reviews, not so much. So Fiona, for the dummies like me, what is exactly a systematic review? Well, this is probably the most difficult question for me to answer of the entire podcast. Great way to start then. <laughs> bear with me, and it should all become clear, I hope, using some examples along the way. A systematic review is a way to analyze together in a systematic way all the available studies about a particular topic in healthcare. So you'll have more than one study that looks at a particular question. For example, hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. There's a few different studies that have all done more or less the same thing. And each one has a slightly different result. And what the systematic review does, it puts all the data together and you get a much more accurate result from having all the data together than you do from looking at each individual trial by itself. And do we have the outcome regarding chloroquine? It doesn't work, I understand. This is it, yes. Despite tweets from Elon Musk or whatever other strange information is out there, the randomized trials that compared hydroxychloroquine against placebo, they show that this drug makes little to no difference to the risk of death in patients with COVID-19 and probably increases the risk of adverse events. And when I say probably, we can talk about that wording later. This is to do with levels of certainty of evidence, but I think we'll probably talk about that later. And this understanding of the final outcome of the usefulness of the drug was only possible through a systematic review kind of analysis, it, I understand correctly? Exactly. So the, the methods behind it are, 
first of all, to identify all the available evidence. That's more complicated than it sounds, because sometimes you have to dig really deep in strange places to get hold of trials. The information is not always published in in journals as they're supposed to be. So first of all, you find the information. And then there's an element of critical appraisal in a systematic review, which gives us an idea of how certain we are about the results in these trials. And then there's the statistical magic, which is done by the the software. You don't have to do it by hand, thankfully. And this is is what's really fundamental about this kind of analysis. When you have all the data and the meta-analysis, which means analysis about analysis, because each trial is itself a piece of analysis. You put them together and it's one overall result instead of nine different results. And you're thinking, oh, that one's that one's a little bit higher than that one. All of them together is one result. Yeah, because I found the same issue also in, you know, in non-clinical research where you have different experiments, different researchers trying to assess, address the same question in different ways and so often you know the results just together they make no apparent sense so i understand the usefulness of systematic reviews so these are okay this is the definition of systematic reviews what with like what's with cochrane systematic reviews what what's the deal why are they the gold standard well okay I'm going to use maybe a slightly strange analogy here. The people that started the the Cochrane collaboration back in the early 90s, they were amongst the first people to do systematic reviews. And they set up the Cochrane collaboration, an international not-for-profit collaboration of investigators, researchers, clinicians. And they've set the standard for how systematic reviews should be done. Like Apple were the first people to make smartphones. And then everyone else went, oh, yeah, smartphones, that's a good idea. We'll start making them. So Cochrane, they set standards for systematic reviews. Anyone can look at the Cochrane method and say, okay, well, I can do a systematic review. If it's published by Cochrane, it meets their standards. If you do a systematic review that's not a Cochrane review, it doesn't necessarily have to meet all the same standards as there are in a Cochrane review. So it's like a quality stamp. More or less, yes. I mean, they they are generally seen as the best, you know, if systematic reviews themselves are already at the top of the evidence hierarchy, and ideally, a Cochrane systematic review will generally trump a non-Cochrane systematic review, generally. So, given this level of hierarchy, systematic reviews technically apply to pretty much, you know, putting together any in any field of science. But the Cochrane reviews, aren't they more used in medicine? And if so, uh, what is their impact to the medical field? Well, systematic reviews in general are incredibly useful for for clinicians, for decision makers. As we've just been saying, it's it's much easier to look at a systematic review than to go off and, and look at different studies and try to make sense of different things when you're reading separate reports. Cochrane reviews are very often used in clinical guidelines. When I say clinical guidelines, that could be guidelines produced by the World Health Organization, or in the UK context, we've got the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. These are basically the the guidelines that, that tell healthcare professionals what treatments they should be doing when they see this condition. This is basically 
what we should be doing. And these guidelines, if at all possible, they're based on systematic reviews. And in, in Cochrane um, reviews, there are some Cochrane groups, for example, the Pregnancy and Childbirth Cochrane Group has a very close relationship with the World Health Organization. They, they get most of their reviews are cited in WHO guidelines. So it has this impact on a kind of global scale. What it takes to write these systematic reviews, like what are the, the actual steps? How do you start? How do you proceed? You know, I, I want to do a gold standard systematic review. What, what do I do? You need a good team of people. Usually you might have probably on average five or six people on the author byline. You will need to have a clinical specialist, someone with clinical knowledge, whether it's a nurse, midwife, doctor, pharmacist, someone like that who knows the topic really well. You'll have someone like me who knows the method of doing a systematic review, regardless of the topic. You'll need a statistician, usually, and an information specialist. Sorry, what's an information specialist? The information specialist. This is how I started in the field of um, healthcare research. Before I became a systematic reviewer, I was uh, an information specialist. That is the person who finds all the studies for your systematic review. This is the person who knows how to um, how to use bibliographic databases. So when when you're searching for studies, you don't just go to Google or not even just Google Scholar. It's a lot more complex than that. And the, my the whole way... PhD is a failure. Then <laughs> did you just use Google Scholar? I I won't comment on that. <laughs> Well, if you used an information specialist to help you, you would know how to use Medline and Embase and a whole list of databases that they have a record of endless amounts of published literature in the in the health care um, research field. But before you start searching, you really need to make a plan. There's a lot of work goes into planning a systematic review. And often these plans are published. When it's a Cochrane review, you publish the plan, which is called a protocol. And that's where you clearly define what you're looking for. You define your question. So it could be, what, what's the effect of um, vitamin D supplementation in pregnant women? So you've got pregnant women, that's your, your population that you're interested in, your intervention, you're interested in vitamin D supplementation. Um, what are you comparing it to? We want to compare vitamin D supplementation compared to placebo or just standard care. So does vitamin D supplementation work versus not doing vitamin D supplementation? You define what kinds of studies you're interested in generally, you would only be looking for randomized studies because in a randomized study, you have your two groups, usually two groups could be more. One group gets the active treatment, the other group doesn't. And apart from that, all the groups are more or less the same. So whatever differences you see at the end of the study is due to the treatment that they have received. And the other thing you define is your outcomes. When I say outcomes, that probably means something different in, for, for different people. What we mean by outcomes is something like, did people die at the end of this study? Um, what was the effect on their, I don't know, on their weight, on how many people had preeclampsia? If it's the vitamin D in, in pregnant women example, um, they were interested in which women had preeclampsia, which women had 
uh, gestational diabetes and what was the effect on the birth weight of the babies that they had. So all of this is clearly, clearly defined in your plan before you start the review. And then, as I say, information specialist finds all the information for you. And then you sift through the results that the information specialist gives you. It could be thousands of results. It could be much less, depending on the topic area. From this point, all the tasks are done by two people independently. So I will sift through the search results. Another person on the team does it separately. Then we meet together and we decide, okay, which studies fit the criteria that we've defined? And we decide, okay, we've got say 10 studies we're going to include. They've got the people we're interested in, the intervention, and they're all randomized studies. Then you extract the information that you need. You record what data is reported and you look at how did they do the trial? What was their process for randomization? Um, Did they report what they said they were going to report? And then you do your analysis, which is actually the quickest part. <laughs> you just you put the numbers in. Once you've read the numbers and you've recorded them, you, you put them into the software and, and that's your result. And then we also have a method for assessing the overall certainty of this evidence that we've identified and then write up the results. It's a long process. You know, you managed to, to make it sound like, yeah, straightforward and, and smooth. I'm pretty sure there's always some, you know, something gets stuck. I'm actually curious, like... When you said that the, the two reviewers, the, the two people that read it, they, they read it independently in, in parallel, they go through the whole information and then they, they try to meet in the middle. So what happens then? Like what if, because I assume that of course you have you know, established grading systems, of course, uh, but I understand there's always some level of subjectivity. So did it, does it happen that the two people might disagree on the, on the outcome of their evaluation? So how do you solve that? Yes, that does happen. Sometimes if you have a published trial that's has been written in a way that's not very clear exactly what they did and who they included in their trial. And I think, oh, well, that that does fit. That fits what, what we're looking for. And then my colleague says, oh, I, I don't think it does because I don't think they randomized. We try to contact the people who did the trial to ask them, but we often don't get a response. And then as a group, we, you know, we go beyond the, just the two people who are looking at, at the study and we ask the rest of the team, what do you all think? And we go with the consensus. So I, I guess there, there is that element of subjectivity and we do always acknowledge that in the published systematic review, there's always slight element of that. Okay, another question that popped based on this description. How do you resolve a situation where you have no studies that pass your actual Well, this is where systematic reviews are really useful in a way that you might not think they'd be useful. If it's an important clinical question and there's no studies, we still, at Cochrane, we still publish. It's called an empty review, which sounds useless, but it's actually not because it says, this is an important clinical question. Why hasn't anyone done any trials about it? And then the idea is people who are in a position to fund trials, to design trials will say, okay, we need to do a trial about this. So instead of just saying at the end of the systematic review, we didn't find any studies, more research is needed. You say, ideally, future trials should do this. They should be designed like this. They should recruit this many people. They should measure this outcome. They should follow up people for this duration. So then people can read the review and go, okay, this is what we need to do. How do you select 
the studies? Like these two reviewers, right, who go through the, the studies, how do you say, okay, this is in and this is out? We'll basically use the plan that we've already made. So first of all, is it randomized? Yes or no? That's that's often a gray area <laughs> um, because you you so often get. Can it be uh, a, gray, a gray area? How is yes. It? Yeah. How can that? Can I ask you how can that? Like, <laughs> do you have an example of a gray randomized trial? <laughs> it's it doesn't happen so often nowadays, but I've seen some older trials, you know, from back in the twentieth century, where they they say we allocated the participants in a randomized fashion, which means. <laughs> what exactly we we don't know or they say they might call it randomized in the title of the study but then when you look at the methods it might say we allocated people alternately so that could be okay 10 people are coming to the study office we'll just do okay the first one is in group a the second one is in group b yeah, that, but that's that it's not so non-random yeah yes exactly yeah Okay, so first of all, you said, if it, is it randomized and yes or no? Oh, yes. And, uh... Uh, so is it randomized, yes or no? Is it the people that we're interested in? So vitamin D supplementation for pregnant women. Are they all pregnant women? Um, because it could be a trial that's looking at vitamin D supplementation in the general population. But if they've got a substantial number of pregnant women, then we would probably include it and ask the study authors, did you have data just for these pregnant women? Is it the intervention we're interested in? Is it vitamin D supplementation or is it some other supplementation? And what was the comparator? Were they comparing it to no active treatment or were they, were they comparing vitamin D supplementation to something else that's as an active treatment? And that doesn't quite tell us the same thing as vitamin D versus nothing. And if we would always include, for Cochrane reviews, you'd always include studies that meet those criteria, the, the population criteria, the intervention and the comparator and the study design, if they don't report the outcome you're interested in, so if it's these pregnant women, but it doesn't tell you who had preeclampsia at the end of the study or who had diabetes, we still include it. And then we can say, well, we included 12 trials, but two of them didn't actually answer this important part of our question. What about conflict of interest? Does this somehow, you know, it gets included in these in these criteria? Yeah, the anything where you're probably thinking of things like in a in a drug trial where it's the pharmaceutical manufacturer has has funded the trial or they've had some that's involvement exact, in the trial. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, we still include it. We will always report again. This is Cochrane Review standards. You will report how many of your studies were funded by commercial sources, how many were funded by universities or, or whatever. What, how, how they were funded does come into it, but we wouldn't exclude on those grounds. Did it ever happen? No, I'm pretty sure it happened several times. Did you have uh, any exceptional situation worth telling uh, when you had to exclude a study for like ridiculous reasons or something like that? Um, well, I've got two I could tell you about recently. One on a review I'm working on just now for some really rare and really horrible skin condition. And there's a study that meets our inclusion criteria. But someone stumbled, someone in the, the systematic review team stumbled across another publication related to that study. And it was a, a statement of concern, expression of concern published in, in the journal saying... Uh -oh. 
that yeah <laughs> there's something funny about this trial they didn't get ethical approval for it there, there's there's a few things there's so many alarm bells about that trial that they, they didn't I mean getting ethical approval is absolutely key you can't do a trial without that I mean I don't know if the trial happened or did they make it all up I, I don't know but we have excluded it because of these expressions of concern but another case where the study wasn't excluded, but we couldn't get data because of the involvement of the manufacturer of the product. The systematic review topic was interventions for preventing mastitis in breastfeeding women. So mastitis is a really horrible, painful thing that happens to a lot of women when they're trying to breastfeed. So um, there was a few trials that compared probiotics to placebo. Three or four, I think, and they all had industry involvement. They were all funded by, or the probiotics were provided by, the manufacturers. One of them refused to publish data, and it was the, it's the biggest trial. It's 600 women who volunteered for a study, and the manufacturers have refused to allow the results to be made publicly available. So we... We can only speculate about why they don't want the results to become um, public. And as I said, this review, this trial was not excluded from our review because it, it fits our criteria of the breastfeeding women, an intervention designed to prevent mastitis. But we had to draw attention to the fact that we couldn't get the results. So we know that our evidence is not complete about the question of does does probiotics prevent mastitis did you try to contact them did you get some form of shady answer or <laughs> it was just you know they ghosted you well uh, we made two or three attempts to contact the manufacturer we contacted the woman who ran the trial she was turned out to be just as frustrated as we were um, because she did this project as part of her PhD, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, I'm and, so sorry for her. Yeah, it's really causing her a lot of problems. It's just, you know, some small print in the contract that said, oh, yeah, you can't publish the results without the permission of the the manufacturer. And we've had um, various correspondence be between me and her, and she's she was furious in her institution, her university was trying to support her to to sort this situation out. The last I heard was probably last summer and there was no change. And when we tried to contact the manufacturers, we got no response at all. Well, I don't know if this is make, make for a, a very logical segue, but uh, I, um, speaking of data that isn't being published, uh, you mentioned that you sometimes like have uh, or try to find data that are not in the actual uh, public section app. How do you actually find those? You know, it's do you just like approach institutions in general, like say, hey, anyone has have has anyone done any studies on this? Or well, there's different ways to go about it. I suppose at the stage where the information specialist is looking for studies, they will, as well as looking at all the the usual places, the the published literature they do search things like conference abstracts and other places where studies are in the public domain, but not at the stage of a full publication in a journal. 
So that, that's when you're identifying the studies. At the level of data, so we might have a study, as, as in, in, in that case that I just spoke about, where we've, we've got the study, um, we know it happened, but they didn't publish any data, or something like, this happens less nowadays, but in older studies, in a published trial, they'll just say, we found no significant differences between groups in terms of number of women who got preeclampsia. And okay, but we need to know the data. So we write to them and ask them how many got preeclampsia, how many didn't. And the response rate varies sometimes. Sometimes when the trials are really old, you find, well, actually the person who did the trial is now dead. So there's no hope of getting the data. This has happened to me, yes. Or sometimes you get lucky and you get lots of data. I was wondering now, um, given the fact that you seem to go really, really deep into each study, like contacting the authors, getting the data, I'm wondering, like, in making a systematic review or a Cochrane-level systematic review, how much do you take into consideration peer reviews? Because most of the, I mean, I, I cannot be sure for all clinical studies because I know that clinical studies anyway gets pre-registered. So regardless of the outcome of the publication, you know they're there. Uh, but other studies usually you you get them um, public after a peer reviewing, and of course no one you know we all know it's not a perfect process and etc. So for the systematic review, how useful is it? Is it useless? Does it help? Is it a form of first level filtering? Well, I suppose that's where for a non Cochrane review, some people do make the decision that they will only include peer reviewed publications. For Cochrane reviews, we don't. We will include something that, say, has only been presented as a conference abstract, and that conference abstracts don't really go through peer review. And we'll acknowledge that, but we don't, I wouldn't say, I mean, we have a process for assessing the risk of bias, you know, the, the sort of internal validity, I think that's the technical term for it, of a study. But when it's when it's only published as a conference abstract, we will try to contact the authors to check that those are their final data. Um, we can get a, try to get more information from them, uh, like how did you do your randomization, that kind of stuff, because often there's not enough space in a conference abstract. You know, they've got 300 words to describe their study that probably took them years to do. So we'll ask for more details as long as we can. As a, as someone who you know goes through literature as a job for a profession, how would, would can I ask you what's your opinion of peer reviewing? Well, do you know I've done peer reviewing myself, and I find it a really strange process because I'm I'm in favour of unblinded peer review because Absolutely, I think it's, yeah. I mean, like uh, when the, the reviewers are, um, so the name of reviewers are, are published. Yeah. Yes. I think <laughs> that definitely makes me try to be as nice as possible when I <laughs> give my comments, um, if I know that they're going to know who I am. But I, I also want to know who the other reviewers are, because I don't know how thorough they are. I don't know if they're only getting two peer reviewers, or it could be four. I, I don't know. And I can only use the knowledge that I have. I'm, I'm not a statistician and I don't know for sure that they are going to get a statistician to look at this study 
Um, so I usually say that in my comments, saying I I'm assuming a statistician is going to check these data and check the methods. I think it looks okay, or I think maybe they could have done this a bit better, but I'm I'm not the expert for that. So I think for me, it's a bit of a, a mystery sometimes how it's done by different journals. Because, I mean, when you see that some of the things that are published, you think, how did that get past peer review? And you guys will know how hard it is to get published. And then you see some of the stuff. I had that... no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know, for example, I noticed the, the, the few times I also peer reviewed the small journals I was peer reviewing for. Uh, they actually had a field in their reviewer form where the reviewer could request uh, a statistician. There was actually a box to check. Uh, I request uh, a statistical checkup or, you know, uh, the study needs to ch be checked for, for st statistics. But it, it is true that, you know, knowing in advance and even for the uh, afterwards when the publication is published, there was a lot of this conversation going about of uh, publishing the conversation and uh, the feedback and the conversation between the reviewer and the author, not only the name. So first of all, that helps a lot, even, you know, students like myself, like reading the reviewing process of a publication is extremely valuable. Uh, but also I think it responsabilizes a lot, the reviewer, knowing that whatever he's going to, he or she's going to request will be out there. And it, it's also, I mean... It's just two or three people's opinion on on one on one study. I mean, you you could have another systematic reviewer like me peer review the same trial and say something different from me. You know, it's it's not it's really not an exact science. Ironically, in the world of science, the way I, I see it is always when when I had to define peer reviewing because I'm not entirely because some people like are against it. The way I try to to define my opinion is. It's just better than nothing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's all what, it what? is. Nothing mm -hmm. else. It's not good. It's not great. It's just better than nothing. Yeah. What do we do if we don't have peer review? I mean, in the Cochrane world, every review gets seen by an endless number of people. It has a proper peer review part. But before that, you have um, an editorial team who do basic checks like, does this generally meet the standards expected by Cochrane? And then it gets to peer review. And then and this, this whole process takes months. A Cochrane review takes forever to finish. And then it needs to be signed off by a more senior editor. And then often another even more senior editor signs off. So there's an awful lot of eyes on, on every Cochrane review. I want to say, like, we might hope, especially from, like, uh, a clinician, I'm not an MD student myself anymore. I actually, like, do actual clinical work, mostly. And, uh, well, Cochrane reviews in the medical field, they're nearly law. Therefore, I'm happy to hear that the, it might be a bit more convoluted, if a bit uh, slower. Also, I wanted to ask, we have these archives nowadays, like BioArchive, MedArchive, in particular, for the field of medicine, but there are other archives as well that have not been peer-reviewed. Would an information specialist also delve through those, especially given how many studies just exploded in the past year? I actually don't know. I hope they do, and I will confess, when I read a systematic review, I don't often pay a lot of attention to the, the search section, and that's terrible, given that I used to be an information specialist as well. It's such an important part of the whole process, but no one pays any attention to it. No one really studies what sources did they search 
to find studies for the systematic review. You, you should get an information specialist on to talk about this because it, it is really interesting how they design their searches, how they decide where to search. And it can become more and more difficult because there's there's more and more ways of people making their studies available in, you know, whatever archives are there. It's an ongoing challenge. And it's interesting, actually, speaking of peer review, because the search part of systematic reviews is generally the only part that's only done by one person. It's not it's not checked. It's not, you know, um, it, it would be a form of peer review for two different information specialists to do separate searches and see what they come up with. But as far as I know, no one does that. So the search is made by one person yeah, and then the result of the search is given to the two uh, reviewers. That's it. That's it. So if it would happen to be Giuliano who's doing his Google Scholar search, no one might know. Exactly. Yes. You just that... take for granted that the information specialist knows what they're doing. I'm afraid <laughs> I will have to ask the editor to cut out this part when you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will ask him to keep it. <laughs> And uh, going back to the process of making the systematic reviews, I have this, more rather than a concern, a curiosity regarding biases, right? So, at least in non-clinical research, uh, I understand that there is this very strong bias towards positive results or, what you know, probe marks, positive results, whatever that means. So, when you're writing a systematic review, or when you're searching... The, the studies to write systematic reviews in clinical studies again just because in clinical studies you have the pre-registration is usually correct me if i'm wrong is there any possibility for this kind of positive results publication bias or because of the pre-registration you can't really hide them although you did mention this episode where this company was not publishing the results so how do you work with that well the issue of pre-registering trials is is still not working as well as it should. I know nowadays for most journals, a condition of being published is that your trial needs to have been registered prospectively, i.e. you register the trial before you start doing the trial. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. You would think. However, so many studies I see are registered after they've already started recruiting people. So the, the thing of registering trials is still not happening as it should. And I, I don't see how it's going to change. because it, So at the same time, as you want people to register before they start, and you also want people to publish. So I, I know of one study that's included on another review I'm doing about a second trimester abortion. And there's one trialist had she we got the the conference abstract she'd published uh, her results as a conference abstract and we wrote to her and said have you got more more data you can give us and she said yes i've got this whole manuscript i'm trying to get it published but because i didn't register prospectively i'm having trouble finding a journal to publish it but we can still include the data in the systematic review which is great i mean i feel for her not being able to get it published but at least we're using the data to inform the the evidence base so i'm not sure if that actually answers your original question 
Well, I was more wondering how you deal with it. And as far as I understand, it, it's just, you know, you, you, well, you, you can deal with it because, as you said, you don't need necessarily the study to be published to include it in your study as long as you know about it. Yes, because you, you, I think, you, were you going to start asking about publication bias? Yes, and positive results. Yes, this does happen where there's definitely a tendency for trials that have positive results to get published more easily than ones that say there might be little to no difference between this treatment and doing nothing. So we, as a, as a part of the systematic review process, we try to test for this. You, you can do statistical tests to check if it looks like some studies are missing. So that, that sounds super complicated. Wait, there is a, a test that tells you if, if it's likely that there are tests missing. So, yeah, that's essentially it. If we have enough studies, it needs to be at least 10, ideally more. So in, in my review I did recently about giving steroid injections to pregnant women at risk of preterm birth. We had 27 trials. And with our analyses, we can do statistical tests on those results that will give us some idea whether or not it's likely that there are other studies out there that have not been published. I'm with no words. I had no it's idea. magic. <laughs> statistics exactly. magic. What is there is science <laughs> and then there's statistics. It's just it's its own thing. Yep. <laughs> the the bad point is that we don't usually have enough studies to do that statistical test in the first place. But like like the example I spoke about with probiotics, that's where we know for sure there are data missing. Because we've got, you know, this trial happened. We don't know the results. So how many more are there that we don't even know about? And what about biases in the reviewer? Um, because I was discussing this with my lab mates some, some weeks ago. And again, I do non-clinical studies, non-clinical research. And uh, of course, in the everyday literature reading, uh, we were discussing with his colleague mates that we, we can't avoid having also our own biases just while searching literature. Like, what keywords do I have in my newsletter from PubMed, right? Or what kind of topics? And because, of course, you can't read all the literature that's out there. It's impossible. So, of course, you have to make your own research and using keywords and stuff like that. And that's already a bias because you're neglecting some other studies. So I'm wondering, as, as a writer or systematic reviewer, are there any personal biases and are there ways to try to address them somehow? I think this is where having so many people involved in your systematic review team is really useful. So... Like starting at the beginning with searches and what keywords you use, part of the information specialist job will be to make sure that they've got every possible keyword that you can imagine. I mean, when you when you do your Google Scholar search, you, you might have two or three keywords. I feel there's, um, there, there's some highlighting here that I'm... <laughs> Um, okay, thank you. <laughs> but when when an information specialist does a search in Medline, which is always the first place to start for any um, search of the medical literature, the Medline search could be 50 lines long and every line will have, you know, it could have one keyword or might have different variations. I mean, if it's something to do with pregnant women, you'll use pregnant, pregnancy, all variations of that you can think of. So that will ensure that the search is 
as comprehensive as possible. That's why we always get way more results than we need, because the search is super, super sensitive. But there is always a chance that you miss something. And, and again, we acknowledge that. Every Cochrane review has a little section with the heading potential biases in the review process. And we always say we've gone to every length possible to do a comprehensive search. There's always a chance that we've missed something. In terms of other parts of the review, it's really useful to get opinions from people who are actually affected by the condition that you're investigating. So again, if it's pregnant women, at some point, get some input from women who have been pregnant. Or if it's women with incontinence, get some opinions from them about things like what are your important outcomes. So taking the example of urinary incontinence, a woman with incontinence will probably tell you that she's most interested in, will this drug or whatever the intervention is, will this thing improve my symptoms. But someone who is a urologist, a clinician in this area, they might want to measure the number of milliliters of urine. They might think that's important. But if you have enough people involved at the, the planning stages of your review, you can make sure that it's the more important outcomes, the ones that matter to the patient, that you're going to include in your systematic review. Because the woman doesn't care if it's 20 milliliters or 25. She's just going to care, well, um, am I less incontinent than I was before? Oh, so you, you actually do include the patients in the selection of, of the goal of the systematic review. So you try to answer the questions that the patients would be more interested in. Am I, did I understand correctly? Well, for Cochrane reviews, um, we try to, yes, there's... Um, there's a Cochrane, it's called the Cochrane Consumer Network, I think. There, there's this whole side of Cochrane that really makes a lot of effort to involve the general public in, in Cochrane reviews. So people with certain conditions could be sort of in constant contact with the relevant Cochrane group for their condition. And their views will be used to inform things like what, what important topics do we need to have systematic reviews on and what are the important outcomes that we need to include in those reviews? On that note, to go a bit back to the biases, how would you find like a, a good way to correct or take into account the different types of biases that studies might have? Like might be like very, you know, heterogeneous. This uh, study has a severe ascertainment bias. This study, they... The, all measurements were done by the same person or this type of stuff. I just like try to be very stringent with um, quality metrics or or do you try to rescue some of the, let's say, poor quality or different quality studies? <laughs> yeah, quality, That that's always a, a term that no one knows how to define. But in, in, in terms of bias within a study, for Cochrane Reviews, we've got a set process that we use to assess the risk of bias for various different elements. So how well did they do the randomization? Did they do allocation concealment properly? That's always a tricky thing to describe. Did they treat the two the, the different treatment groups in a different way? We, we have a, a few different ways of judging. Is this high risk of bias? Is it low risk of bias? Or is it unclear? Do we not have enough information to make a judgment? So for example, did they use blinding in some way so that people in the trial didn't know which intervention they got? This is really easy when it's drugs. You've got an active drug and you've got a placebo and they should be identical except for the active ingredient. 
or if it's the the example I referred to earlier about in steroid injections for pregnant women. Surprisingly, of our 27 trials that we had in that review, some of them didn't use placebo. It's really easy to do a saline injection as a placebo. So if they didn't do that, we said, well, we think that's a high risk of bias because really they should. It's, it's not difficult to do. So it's if people know what treatment they've had and if the people involved in their care know which treatment they have, that could influence outcomes later in the study. Now, these, of course, these systematic reviews have clearly a huge utility and usefulness in, in medicine and for clinicians and stakeholders and decision makers. And as far as I understand, at least in, in, in Cochrane systematic reviews, the patients are involved, at least in trying to understand what are the relevant questions. Are the systematic reviews approachable by the general audience? Well, a systematic review that's not published by Cochrane, they will be published in a peer-reviewed, as a peer-reviewed uh, publication in a journal. So maybe in, in the BMJ, if you're really lucky, you'll get published <laughs> in the BMJ or some topic-specific journal, like in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology or whatever. And I don't imagine those journals have a big kind of general audience. It's going to be clinicians reading them. So I don't know if the authors of those reviews go to any lengths to try to to try to get their systematic review to a more general audience. For Cochrane reviews, there is a lot of effort. There's a whole department at Cochrane for this. The knowledge transfer department, which sounds super posh. It's it's I love it. It sounds like <laughs> you know in those comic books or in those cartoons when you have the office, the high office that does something specifically so shady. What what's the name again? Knowledge transfer. Knowledge transfer office. That's it. That's it. I love it. And it, it's it's shortened to KT. And the, the woman who's in charge of KT happens to be called Katie, which is brilliant. <laughs> Come on, you did that on purpose. Oh, during the no, during the recruitment, you were looking for someone called that name. Oh, it's so brilliant. I love it when we get Katie from KT to come to a meeting. But yeah, they, they have all sorts of things going on where they they do podcasts of Cochrane reviews. There's a really good blog called Evidently Cochrane, which is, I think a lot of things are probably written, targeted at healthcare professionals who are not systematic reviewers, but they're easily understandable by a general audience as well. There's a lot of activity on Twitter. Different Cochrane groups have a, a Twitter presence. Cochrane UK is on Instagram, I think. Oh yeah, an important thing for Cochrane reviews each Cochrane review has a plain language summary. So this is where, after 18 months of work, 100,000 words, or however long your Cochrane review is, they tend to be very long. You're supposed to put it into 500 words in a plain language summary. It's oh, incredible. that must be your favourite part. <laughs> it's horrendous. And I like writing. This is the part, one of the parts that I enjoy the most, is actually writing the results. And this is what all, all these numbers mean. But it's so hard to write it without jargon and in such a short space. And in fact, recently there was a there was a, a pilot project in Cochrane to get professional writers to write these plain language summaries for some reviews. For the COVID reviews, they've used professional writers to do it and they've done a fantastic job. Because for, for us as systematic reviewers, 
we've got no training in um, what, what would it be called? Public communication or public engagement with science or, or whatever the term science is. Science communication, maybe. Yeah, I mean, when I did my master's degree in health services research and public health, which was a fantastic course at Aberdeen University. I have great memories of it. But I didn't learn anything about how to communicate my research. And I think we're getting better at it. I do think the general public will have more of an appetite for this. Given the pandemic, people have really started paying a lot more attention to science. I think people are starting to understand clinical trials a bit better. They're starting to understand a bit more about, you know, like the vaccine trials or the recovery trial. That was the one about dexamethasone, I think, the steroid for um, for COVID-19. These have had such a lot of attention in the news. I think people are getting more used to hearing the, the numbers and um, just being a bit more aware of how clinical trials work. I think we need to do the same for systematic reviews. We need to have systematic reviewers doing TED Talks. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree on that. No, I, I absolutely agree. I noticed that I never got so many questions about science or my job, although I don't work on COVID, from my friends outside of the field as in this year. Like, I work on brain, right? And during COVID, I had my friends just asking me so many questions of what I do, although I, what I do has nothing to do with the virus. I noticed that they're just getting more and more aware of research going on as a thing. Yes, I had a conversation with a friend last night about the risk of thrombosis with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And she quoted a number at me about one, one in a hundred thousand gets, gets a blood clot or whatever. And I said, is that, how does that compare to my normal risk of uh, having a blood clot? And is that, is that one in a hundred thousand or is it one more per hundred thousand compared to someone who hasn't had the vaccine? What does this number mean? And I, I hope that people will just start to think a bit more about how they bandy these numbers around and, and to engage a little bit more with the science. And also from our side as the, the scientists to be able to communicate better. Because we all understand generally, <laughs> more or less, we understand what we're talking about. But to someone who is, you know, who's a little bit scared of statistics, we need to be able to explain things in a really accessible way. Uh, I just have to say that communicating these things, even to like fellow scientists within the same field, is not exactly my strong suit. But I'm <laughs> very much uh, practicing this. Uh, unfortunately, PhD students don't automatically get somebody to write our stuff for us we have to practice that but um, on the other hand this problem i think is like both topical and important so as far as i understand cocker systematic reviews the the review itself is not necessarily directly acceptable uh, accessible to an, an untrained audience but then as far as i understand there is this uh, super galactic office who takes care of doing the public information <laughs> the, the the media information and then at the end the review you have this understandable version of, of of the reviews what about accessing the review like practically because i understand that there is also sometimes a paywall in cochrane reviews does cochrane have some policies to make it still accessible to i don't know countries or university or institution with less financial availabilities or private citizens who might be interested in reading the understandable version unless maybe the understandable version is actually free Yes, the plain language summary is 
freely available. So w without any paywall or anything, you will always be able to read the abstract, which is the summary that's up to a thousand words. Then you can also read the 500 word plain language summary, and you will also see the author's conclusions and some tables that show you some data, which are generally reasonably understandable. And in terms of reading the full review, which I always maintain no one actually <laughs> reads the full reviews except the copy editors and <laughs> the people who have to uh, do all the editing and the, you know, check in all the numbers. Oh, exactly um, but, like PhD thesis. Yes, exactly. Your mum's not going to read it. <laughs> she was the only person I was hoping to read it. Thank you for breaking that to me, Fiona. We well, you never know. Spoiler in the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Yeah, read, reading a whole Cochrane review, if you would like to do so, it depends what country you're in in the world, if you can access them freely. In the UK, it's freely available. I'm in Spain, and I think without my Cochrane login, I don't think I can see full reviews, but I'm not sure. I think last year, when the pandemic started, the publishers of the Cochrane Library which is uh, Wiley. I think they, they gave free access to everyone in the world for a year, but I think that's now up. And it was a question that was asked recently at the Cochrane Governing Board, something or other, I can't remember the name of the me of the meeting, but there, there was the opportunity, someone asked a question, will this free access be maintained? And they said, oh, well, we're, we're looking into it. So at the moment, no decision is made. But as I said, you can always get the plain language summary and the abstract wherever you are. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much, Fiona, for, for all this. Uh, I definitely feel way more knowledgeable about the topic. As I said at the beginning, Elmo was clearly more familiar than I was. I remember that we had the pre-recording meeting with Elmo before even meeting you, Fiona. And I was, you know, super prepared. I, I read about you and I wrote about the topic and I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show off that I, I'm prepared for the episode. And then Elmore comes on and he knows the history of Cochrane. He knows the, the, all the systematic reviews, the better, the good ones. And I was like, okay. But now I feel much better. I think I can, I can hold a conversation with Elmore about the systematic reviews. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <for you. laughs> Excellent. That's good to hear. Uh, if someone or anyone would like to know more about Cochrane Systematic Reviews or possibly about your work, where can they find this information? Probably the best place to go would be Cochrane.org. And if anyone wants to read my reviews, as I'm sure they will, they can. if you go to Cochrane.org and you can put in my name into the, the search field, Fiona Stewart with a W, very important, then you'll find my work somewhere in there. Highly recommended, everyone. Just go and check them out. Um, so this is it for today. It's the end of the episode, but not the end of our Cochrane mini saga, if you want to call it that way. There's still one episode to come. In the next episode, we'll be speaking with Jack Nunn about how the, the general audience, the non-scientist, uh, should address and filter out and gather the information from this chaotic scientific world. Uh, Jack Nan, as founder and director of the non-for-profit education organization Science for All. So sounds like the right person to tackle that. So, you know, work for it and be sure to follow us in our social medias and 
follow us on all your podcasting platforms. Like us, share it with your friends, everything. Uh, thank you so much, Fiona, again. You've been absolutely amazing. Thank you, Alma, for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. And thank you for our listener and uh, for our listeners. Hopefully, there will be more than one. Uh, anyway, thank you for joining us today. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode and see you next time. Bye. 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 The science If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This episode was done in collaboration with the Cochrane Institute. For more information about them or to look at their systematic reviews, please visit Cochrane.org. This podcast was produced by the Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at the science